Well, I'd like to introduce uh, Rabbi Levine. He is the rabbi of our local Orthodox synagogue in Willow Glen called uh, Mechad. He's been a rabbi there since 2007, where he's unified the, the community and grown it substantially um, through that time. Uh, before that, well, he was originally born in Miami, and uh, after attending yeshiva in both the U.S. and in Israel, he actually attended law school at the prestigious uh, Ivy League school at Penn. Um, but even there, he was uh, pushing uh, um, um, Yiddishkeit. Uh, he actually create, started a group, uh, Jewish Heritage Club, where he got Jewish students together and... Um, increase their level of, uh, of Jewish knowledge. Um, so after that, he came to, to Am- Amakad. And, uh, you know, I've known him for um, a, a few years, but I really got to know him the uh, last year and a half after I started going to Amakad uh, uh, on a daily basis to say uh, Kaddish for uh, my dad, a blessed memory. And he's been, Rabbi Levine has been a great inspiration uh, for me since that, since that time. Um, I've been um, inspired, greatly inspired by his uh, drashes and his classes. I was actually took a class from him even earlier this morning. Um, and um, Rabbi Levine, all, all four of his uh, grandparents are Holocaust survivors. So uh, that, so I'm looking forward to what he has to say uh, today. Um, he actually also has uh, seven children. So uh, you know what could be greater uh, uh, revenge on, on Hitler than that? So with that, Rabbi Levine. Okay, thank you very much, Russ. I am Rabbi Levine. I know a few people here. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of background before I speak about how the Holocaust uh, impacted me in particular, um, I, I think you heard about that uh, I learned in multiple yeshivas. I, I, am a, I have a law background. I actually get questions around the Bay Area from many of the rabbis because of my rabbinic and law background uh, as well. But... Pertinent to today, um, all four of my grandparents uh, were Holocaust survivors. My father's parents were the lucky ones. My father's parents were Polish Jews, and in 1940, they had the privilege of being exiled to Siberia. Um, Many of their siblings, both all of my great-grandparents, did not have that privilege, they all died in the Holocaust. My father's parents were still single. They met in Siberia. Um, I, my grandfather, all four of my grandparents, I was lucky. My bubbies and zaddies, my sabas and sabas, they were, I grew up in Miami Beach, they were there. And I remember looking at my grandfather's feet as a little boy and seeing they were all blue. They had been frostbitten um, from his days in Siberia. But relatively speaking, they survived because uh, in 1940, they refused Russian citizenship when Russia took over their part of Poland. And they were sent to Siberia, and that's why they lived. I mean, there, some of their siblings, all of their parents, uh, cousins, all were killed in the Holocaust. 
My mother's parents were not that lucky. Uh, they were in the German side of Poland in 1939. They, my, they lost their entire family. Uh, my mother grew up with no grandparents, no cousins, no aunts, no uncles, siblings, nothing. Both of my mother's parents were married to different spouses before the Holocaust. They both lost their first spouse in the Holocaust. My mother's father, my, my Zayda Rubin, Rubin, he actually saw his first wife and two kids shot in front of his eyes. Um, I, I'll just tell you very briefly, just to get a, a picture. They had a, a hiding place uh, where they were hiding from the pol- from, from the, the in Poland in a house, and the Nazis surprised them. And they all ran to that hiding place. My, my Zayda got in. His first wife still had the kids, and they shut the door. And through the cracks, he saw the Germans come in. There were about ten other people in that area. They held his mouth, someone next to him, and he saw literally his wife and two children murdered. He, this grandfather, this Zayda in a pit for a year where Paul fed him. He ended up with the Belsky brothers in the forests. My mother's mother, who also was married uh, in, uh, before the war, was in a ghetto. She, my, my bubby Miriam, who's still alive, she's 103 years old. 103. She spoke perfect Polish. She grew up Hasidic. Her brothers only spoke, in, Yid- in Poland, they spoke Yiddish. They had no shot to hide. She was blonde, Blue. She actually at one point worked at a Nazi soup, camp, soup kitchen. She said her biggest nightmare for years was that she would speak Yiddish in her speak, sleep, and they would know that she's a Jew. She was sleeping with Germans and Poles for over uh, a year. And eventually my mother's parents met in the DP camps. Um, when you talk about Polish Jewry, that makes my, 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 certainly my mother's side a miracle. Of course, Poland the general government of Poland had over 3.3 million Jews in 1939. Of those 3.3 million Jews, 3 million plus were murdered. And of the 3 million plus that were murdered, there were 300 some odd thousand that survived. Over 270,000 of those survivors were like my father's parents in Siberia. Less than 100, so mostly about, most estimates say 50,000 Polish Jews survived the 3.3 plus million Jews coming into the Holocaust. Growing up in such a family impacted me with grandparents around me. So I was, grew up with all four of my grandparents being survivors. I myself, my, my Hebrew name, my, actually the name I go by is Menachem Mendel Chaim. Menachem Mendel was my great-grandfather on one side, Chaim was on the other side. All of my siblings have two or three names. We were all named after, my parents never knew how many children they were going to have. We were all named after great-grandparents, great-uncles, great-aunts. Every one of my siblings have two names because we were named after, there were just not enough names to go around. Um, and I grew up with grandparents. Some, my, one of my grandparents, my Baba Miriam, told me everything all the time. She thought it was the biggest mitzvah. I knew every single story. <laughs> I could write her biography. Uh, 
My, uh, she actually, they, she was interviewed by Spielberg. She has hours of, uh, yeah. Um, my grandfather, who, lost, who saw his wife and two kids shot, never, ever, ever spoke about the Holocaust. I never heard a word from him. If I didn't know it from my grandmother, I would have never known anything. He never talked about it. But I heard the stories from my grandmother. He, he never talked about it. I'm one of five, um, and they all have, I have seven, all my siblings have <laughs> a lot. Uh, um, I, I came today, I, I, could list, I have like a little list of multiple topics to how it affected me. It oh, propelled, propelled me to be a rabbi, uh, to help what I do as a spiritual holocaust today. Right? Um, I would say it gave me a feeling of, you never know what's best. Look at me. I exist... Because my mother's parents got married after the war. They were, they were married to somebody else. Right? The divine plan, for whatever reason, is my mother's parents married each other. They would have never... Right? So actually, I was with somebody recently. Uh, you know, I get to meet with all kinds of Jews. You know, I'm an Orthodox rabbi, but I would say most of my lunches during the week are with non-observant Jews. That's, you know, right. That's, that's, you know, I have plenty of a large congregation of Ross... Okay, you tell this is Bergman, but so a guy tells me, you know, why is the Holocaust? How could it got? So I said, I just want to tell you one thing. Most likely, if it would be a Holocaust, it wouldn't be a state of Israel. Almost definitely, I would say. There would be no state of Israel. No way would the state of Israel come into existence without a Holocaust. Does that justify the Holocaust? No. But you just understand there's so much divine plan. I always grew up thinking of my own self. I would not be here. <laughs> That's a. Just, you, a person never knows. That's how, I, I thought that a lot as a kid, that there's a, a divine plan. I, I always grew up in, in, I think, Judaism. I'm sure if we took uh, opinions about many things in Ju- Judaism, in this room we'd have very different opinions, right? We'd all have strongly different opinions about certain things. But you know what? I, 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 at the end of the day, we were all gassed together. We're all Jewish together. We're one people together. And I always grew up with that feeling that we're one nation, that, that at the end of the day, our enemies don't dis- distinguish between different types of Jews, and we shouldn't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have our differences and opinions and uh, philosophies. But at the end of the day, we always have to know we are one nation. Right? If our enemies know that, we need to know that. We are Am Echad. I'm not pro- pro- promoting my show today. <laughs> but we are Am Echad. Um, you know, I, I also learned the importance of not judging. I, not only did I grow up in Miami with four Holocaust survivor grandparents, but I grew up every day seeing Jews put on tefillin with numbers in their arm. Miami Beach, Florida, they used to call Miami Beach Jewish heaven. That's so where all the Jews came to retire. Everyone from New York and Chicago. So you had a huge population in South Beach who used to be of, of Yidin, of Jews, who were 70 80, 90 years old who lived in the, new, in the Northeast and came to Miami to retire and many of them were survivors. So as a young boy, I would see many people with numbers on their arms. I'll never forget, I was, I think, 18 years old. It was Shabbos, Shabbat, and I was walking on the street in Miami Beach. Anyone heard of Ron Dermer, who's the ambassador yeah. to currently? So David Dermer, when I was, his brother was in Miami Beach a few years ago. His father... Jay Dermer was the mayor of Miami Beach. Miami Beach is very Jewish. It's very Jewish. It has a huge Orthodox population. It has a huge conservative It's a very Jewish area. So I remember I was walking in Miami Beach. There's multiple synagogues all over the place. Um, and a lady stops me. She says, come here. 
And it was Saturday afternoon. She's waiting by the bus stop. She looks at me in the eye. And she tells me, my brothers looked like you. I'm wearing a black hat. They looked like you in Vienna. And they all died in the Holocaust. They all, and, it's just late, and they all died in the Holocaust. And she tells me that her granddaughter is marrying an army, a non-Jew, in a few weeks, and she doesn't care because she doesn't want him to die like her brothers die. And she warned me and she warned me that I have to watch out of my life as well, because I look like the way I look. But you know what? I grew up with all kinds of Holocaust stars, and I always said to myself, I can never judge. <laughs> you know what they went through? Right? Right? The stories that I heard as a little boy, I heard, and I still hear today, you don't judge. You learn not to judge people until you, 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 you went into their surroundings. Um, I had a few topics I wanted to embellish on, but I looked at the crowd today, I look at this crowd, this obvious crowd today. We have survivors. We have second generation. We have third generation survivors. We have the future. We have young girls who are coming to connect to Yahudu, to, to, to survivors, to people before them. And, and, and many of these young girls I can see come from Sephardic backgrounds, not Ashkenazi. Am I correct about that? Some? Right? But we're all in it together over here. So I want to just take on one topic. I, I, could, I was going to speak up multiple topics. I want to pick one that I'm going to focus on, actually based on this week's Parsha. What's this week's Parsha? This past week. What do we, what do we, what do we read? Pukudai. This past week on Shabbos, we read Parsha's Pukudai. You can take my seat, by the way. It's open. Pukudai. Yeah. So Pukudai is the last Parsha in all of Seder Shmot. Shmot is Exodus. The last parsha in all of Shmot is Pekudei. And you know how Pekudei ends? It talks about the Anani HaKavod. Who wants the Anani HaKavod? I don't know what the Anani HaKavod is. Clouds of Glory. So we know when the, the Torah tells us that when the Jewish people were in the desert for 40 years, they had clouds of glory. They had Anani HaKavod. It's is Ashkenazi. I'll translate to uh, Ibrit afterwards. Uh, right? It had a nani hakavod going with him. This is how the Torah ends. Uvahaloisa anan mi'al hamishkan yisu b'nei Yisrael b'chol ma'asehem v'imlo yala ha'anan v'lo yisu ad yoyim ha'laso ki anan adran hamishkan yom va'esh t'yel l'ayla bo le'eni kol beis yisrael b'chol ma'asehem When the cloud was raised up from the tabernacle, the tabernacle is the mishkan. What was the mishkan? The tents where the ark was kept. Eventually, the Mishkan would become the Beit Hamikdash, the, the temple. So the, the the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, they would have a cloud to teach with the Jewish people. There are three million Jews in the desert. The clouds would go, and that's where the Mishkan would follow. Wherever the clouds go, the Mishkan would follow. But the last verse says as follows: For the clouds of Hashem of God would be on the Mishkan, the tabernacle, by day, and then the clouds of fire by night, before the eyes of the whole house of Israel throughout their journeys which it, for the 40 years, which is a remarkable thing because the previous verse said when the Jewish people's journeyed, the clouds were not over them. When they, when they rested, the clouds were over them. Yet, the clouds are called going over them with their journeys, so if it, which in theory should be a contradiction. 
The foremost commentator on the Bible is who? Who's the foremost commentator? Tanakh. Rashi. Rashi. Who knows? Anyone? Where's Rashi from? Anyone know? France. Rashi of Shlomo Yitzchaki was the leading Ashkenazi. If you talk all Ashkenazic Jewry, the house of Rashi, they show today, by the way, more than 50% of Ashkenazic Jewry comes from the house of Rashi. More than 50%. The Balitosus, 11th century Rashi's family, the Tosus, more than 50% of Ashkenazic Jewry come from Rashi. I'm not from Rashi, at least on my father's side, because Rashi came from, it was a direct descendant of King David. My last name is Levine, I'm a Levite. So I know I'm not from Rashi. But many, many of us in this room, whether we realize it or not, are actually at some level descendants of Rashi. Maya told me she's a Luria, she's an Arizal. You may also be from Rashi, right? Many of us are from Rashi. Rashi, what does Rashi say on this Pasuk? How is it, it says that we, the clouds were over us when we journeyed. Zokt, Mr. Gan, Zokt explains, explains Rashi. Wherever they traveled, the clouds of glory were above them. Rashi then says, it says that when they traveled, the clouds were in front of them. Then Rashi says, it explains as follows. That the place where they encamped, that's also called a journey. That even when they encamped, it was called a journey. Even where they encamped, they called it a journey. And that is because in life, sometimes we have to realize all of life is a journey. Everything, everything in life is a journey. But even when we're encamped, the essence of a Jew, the essence of a Yid, the essence of a Yehudi, is to realize we are on a journey. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who is the previous chief rabbi of England, actually won this year's Templeton Prize, uh, which is the biggest prize, biggest prize a religious leader could, could win. He makes a remarkable comment on this Rashi. He had a piece that actually came out this week. Judaism is a journey, not a destination. Rabbi Sachs is as follows. Talk about this Rashi. He says, the point is linguistic. But the message of this Rashi, that even where, where camped is a journey, is remarkable. In a few brief words, Rashi has summarized an existential truth about Jewish identity. To be a Jew is to travel. Judaism is a journey, not a destination. Even a place of rest, an encampment is called a journey. The patriarchs, who are the patriarchs? The Avot, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lived not in a house, but in tents. Right? The first time we were told that a patriarch and Av, Yaakov, built a house, proves the point. It says, the Torah tells us in Breshit, that Yaakov traveled to Sukkot. There he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. That's why we call the place Sukkot. The verse is astonishing, okay? I will. I will at the end I'll take all questions. Okay. I hope I take questions. Um, 
So Rabbi Sachs is as follows, that if we, the way we live, the way we live in this world is we're supposed to live as life as a journey. That we're not ever supposed to say we're done. To quote Emmanuel Levan, it's, as I am a stranger, uh, uh, to be a Jew is to stay light on your feet, ready to be in the next stage of a journey, literally or metaphorically. An Englishman's home is his castle, they used to say, but a Jew's home is a tent, a tabernacle, a sukkah. We know life on this earth is a temporary dwelling. That is why to view life, every moment of life as temporary and life as a journey, creates every moment being new and newness. And you know who he brings as an example? He brings a Holocaust survivor. Somebody who passed away very recently. His name is Lord George Wiedenfeld. Has anyone ever heard of Lord George Wiedenfeld? He was in the news recently. Lord George Wiedenfeld, like the Weiss family, was a Jew who, in 1938, though, from Vienna, when Anschluss, when Anschluss was when the Nazis took over Austria, and they brought the Nuremberg Laws within weeks to, to Austria, when Anschluss happened, George Wiedenfeld escaped at the age of 18 from Vienna and ended up in London. He ended up in London. And... He ultimately became a very, very famous publisher, a very, very wealthy, a very wealthy, a very wealthy Jew. He was an advisor to Chaim Weitzman. Who's Chaim Weitzman? First president of Israel. President for Chaim Weitzman. And he lived a life where he was an advisor, he was a leader for many, many, for many, many people. So George Wiedenfeld, the last thing he did this past year, before he passed away, is George Wiedenfeld, George Wiedenfeld sponsored 20,000 Iraqi Christians to come into London. And he said, the reason he sponsored these 20,000 Iraqi Christians is because he himself, uh, was a survivor, and he felt a debt of gratitude that he was taken and survived in London. He felt a debt of gratitude to bring other people to bring other people other people in. He was asked. George Wiedenfeld was asked shortly uh, shortly before he passed away. Right? Why is he so active? He's in his nineties. He passed away this year at the age of ninety six. So that's why he was so active. He, he, he told the Times of Israel, who asked him this question as follows. When you get to the, your 90s, you begin to see the door about to close. He said, I have so much to do before the door closes. And the older I get, the harder I have to work. That's the, the, the message for staying young. That's the way a Jew lives. That no matter what age you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you're doing, that a Jew is constantly pushing themselves to go to the next step. Do you know who, this actually came out this week, there's seven and a half billion people in the world approximately, more than three and a half billion men in the world. Who is the oldest man in the world? That's right. This week, this week it was announced that the oldest human being, over three and a half billion people in the world, the oldest man in the world is a man named Yisrael Kastel, He's an Orthodox Jew who lives in Haifa. In Haifa. Let me tell you about this Yisrael Crystal. He is 112 and a half years old. 
112 and a half years old. He's the old, uh, figure a lady lives longer than a man. There's a lady in America who's 116. But Mr. Castle is 112 years old. Let me tell you how he lived. He was born in 1903 in Poland. He says as a young boy, he was in Galicia. He saw Franz Josef, who is the, the head of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, ride through his town. He remembers seeing Franz Josef. He, got, he went to, to Łódź, or called Łódź. He ended up in Łódź. It's Franz Josef. And he got married. He got married. He had two kids. And the Holocaust started in 1939. He was put in the Lodz ghetto. Does anyone know who the head of the Lodz ghetto was? Well, before that, who the Lodz ghetto? Does anyone know? He's a famous person, Chaim Rumkowski. He was in the Lodz ghetto with Chaim Rumkowski until 1940. Until 1943, in 1943, he got sent to Auschwitz. He lost his wife and his two kids when he was liberated by the Russians in 1945. This man weighed 82 pounds. 82 pounds. And today, over 70 years later, he's married, he has a kid, he has many grandchildren, and many, many great-grandchildren. And he is the oldest living person in the entire world. Who? Oh, he's alive. No, no, they took pictures this week. He's alive. He's alive. It was in the Israeli paper. It's all the international papers. International, international paper, international, international papers. Yeah. 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 Sure. So just very briefly. So he's 112 plus years old. They asked his daughter. They asked his daughter. Tell us about your father's daughter. His daughter's in the 90s. He asked his daughter or late 80s. Tell us about your father. You know what she said about her father? She said it's following about her father. She said that her father never, never walked around negative after the Holocaust. He lost everything. He, had his, he lost his first wife and two children. He, he lost his parents, his siblings, his livelihood. He, he, he was in Auschwitz. He was always optimistic, always positive, and always believed in God. That's what she said about his father. Never looked back at the past. Always positive, always optimistic, and always believed in God. It reminded me of my own grandmother, my own Bobby, who today is 103 years old. My Bobby, my grandmother, I never heard her speak. She always told me in the past, I never spoke her negative. I'm going to tell you something remarkable. My mother used to grow up, when she grew up, had two wood figures that she used to have, an old, like an old man and an old lady. Yeah. And she used to put it on top of the television and imagine that was her grandparents. <coughs> she never knew what her grandparents looked like. She, all my mother knew as growing up as a, as a girl was that her grandparents her, her, and, all of, and all of her aunts and uncles were killed. She never knew anything. But you know what my Bubby always said? She's 103 now. She's the last year because had dementia, unfortunately. She told me one thing always. She told me one thing always. Always say, Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Thank God for every day. Appreciate every opportunity in life. Love every single day of life. She told me this message 
over and over and over. Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Thank God. Appreciate the blessing of every day. And that's why I grew up normal. <laughs> uh, and that's why my parents grew up normal. Because at the end of the day, my grandparents, after the Holocaust, built. They didn't, they didn't mourn the rest of their lives. They went ahead and said, a Jew, you got to build in this world. You got to live in this world. Never to look at anyone who didn't. But really the essence that I, I grew up with and growing up with grandparents in the Holocaust is you thank God for the blessings you have. You welcome the opportunities you have. And if a person has that perspective then we build a future Jewish people. Right? We look what we can give. When I see a crowd like this today, when you see children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, people who survived giving over their knowledge, their, their lives to others, that is Baruch Hashem. We thank Hashem that these girls who are turned by mitzvah or just turned by mitzvah are able to see people who lived through the Holocaust and are there to tell it. So I say, Baruch Hashem, Yom Yom, thank you for inviting me to today. It is a privilege to be with people who memorialize what was important, but who not only memorialize what was important, but build for a great and beautiful and fantastic Jewish future. Okay, any questions? I said very briefly, but any questions? You had a, qu- a question you said? Yeah, I have some questions. Okay. I was born one years ago. In Hungary, Budapest. So I'm working uh, in the Jewish world. And uh, I grew up, uh, sorry, I'm mixing it. Uh, I lived 10 years in Sweden. I left Hungary in 1966. I lived under Nazis, I lived under communists. The Nazis killed us and the communists didn't let us live. There were many Jews among the communists. Some of them were opportunists, others were, um, well, I don't know, but they believed in it. Uh, as Jews, we know that Marx, Engels, they came up with a new religion. Communism is a religion, right, for the communists. In, in Germany, Hitler was a god. Those who believed in Nazism, Hitler was the Führer. And Stalin in Russia wasn't a Russian. He was a Georgian. And he was a god for the communists. Okay, Lenin started it. Now, I am as relevant as you are. Uh, so I want to give my, my background. And I have a question. Yes, I have a question. Where in the Torah is the three million who left Egypt? I never heard that there were three million Jews wandering in Egypt. That's that's one question. Please answer me. Okay. So very briefly, that was just a question, three million? So the Torah says that there are 600,000 men men, from the ages, that's explicit multiple places in the Torah. It's actually how Bamidbar starts, it's how in Shemosh, it's a couple of places, in, in, in Exodus, and in Numbers. Uh, there's 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60. 60. But ages 20 and 60. So the, 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 it's extrapolated. If 20 is 600,000 men, 
So double that. This is 1.2 million for the ladies. And there's at least, I was very conservative, at least two kids per, per family. So probably more than 3 million. But the, the, we say 3 million just to be safe. Good question. Is that any other? Any, uh, anything? Yeah? 600,000 the Torah says it's 600,000 men ages 20 to 60. actually talks about, yeah, that, that's the army age. That's what it says. So that's about over 3 million. Yeah. Anything, anything else? I, I just want to uh, say that the year of experience, my mother and father were both in Auschwitz. My mother's 96 and walking around and she can talk a lot about uh, the experience that you just uh, gave everyone. But she would prefer really not to talk. My parents, like almost all the people I knew who were in the camp, they never really wanted to talk to their children about their experience. It was really only later in life, because they were optimistic. They did not want to burden us growing up about their experience. And it's really interesting, because my kids now, who are 35 and 33, I see the weight of what they went through on their shoulders because they dream about it, they think about it, they write about it, they write essays about it. So um, it's uh, it's kind of a, a similar. I think it's a similar. Yeah. Background. So I'll just on that comment, there's two two points. I know one of the greatest psychotherapists in New York, his name is Yaakov Solomon. He wrote, uh, and, and, and he, and I, he never, I never told me this, but he's close to my family. He wrote an essay a few years ago to thank his father, to thank his father. Why did I ask to thank his father? His father was in Auschwitz. He actually, in the summer of 1960, disappeared for two months. He had no idea why. He found out later that his father went to testify against Eichmann. He said he, he, said he never, his father, he knew his father was a survivor, but, his father, when he, but he read his father's testimonies. He said he thanked his father for being able to play baseball when he was a little kid, not worrying about that that could happen to me. At the same level, this week, international news again, Dustin Hoffman, anyone see this? Dustin Hoffman was interviewed for Roots, and they had told him that his great-grandmother, who was a Russian person who was an under the Nazis, was in a concentration camp and how she survived. And Dustin Hoffman said he grew up with no Judaism, no Yiddishkeit, no Yahadut at all. He knew his parents were Jewish, no Yom Kippur, no Pesach, no nothing, zero. And he said he had such regret that he never knew anything about his Judaism. So it's a very fine balance, right? We want to be optimistic about the future. We don't want to have to live in the past. But at the same time, it's important that these girls and we know about what happened before so that we can both inculcate it and make good decisions on it. Anything else? Yes. Um, I am 85. So, of course, I overcome the war completely. My part of my family, four of us, escaped Odessa when it was already surrounding by sea. My other, all my grandparents, my uncle, my all family was killed in Odessa. My grandparents from father's side was deeply orthodox, deeply. I hardly could see whenever I would come, he would pray. And he was killed. I think, I believe, I didn't know about Judaism anything because I was born 1930 when Stalin started, just started to kill the best Jew, the, the famous, you know. And uh, I didn't know, I was ashamed. My parents talked Yiddish when 
in order for me not to understand. And when I came here, first time when I'm asking, where are you from? What's your accent? I said, I'm Jew from Russia. I don't say I'm Russian. I'm Jew from Russia. And I think, I deeply believe that my generation who survived in such terrible time because we not only lost everything, because when we, we came back, we, the, 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 the remaining, uh, uh, like, uh, Hazern, whatever, Russian, who left, they want to get us and to kill the rest of us. Doesn't matter that we were robbed completely. And uh, since I see how many, it's, um, of course, many, you know, like, relatively, of people who survived that terrible time and the terrible situation, like I'm being hungry, being in the forest looking for some, you know, berry to eat. We survived in order to give next generation of Jew willing to be a Jew and survive and bring Jewishness, Yiddishness, Mamalushness to the future generation. That we have to fight. When you fight, you survive. When you work, you survive. Right. And, uh, by, by the way, so we're all survivors. So we, 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 Claudia, so we are people who came from generation of generation of Jews who built after this, right? We're all here. Bruce, you had a question? Yeah. How do you see the, um, the candle of people who were survivors are going to be maintained? It's going to be through oral tradition. Right now, you know, it's all on, it's on, it's, it's on video, you know. Steven Spielberg has put a lot of stories on video. And to me, with video, you kind of lack the uh, <coughs> compassion, empathy, and feeling of talking to a real person. You have so I would say so we're I'm asking. I'm asking how. Um, so we ever. How are we going to uh, feel? And so it's obviously. So I think I think that's an important question. It's in every year we have Passover. What do we 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 celebrate something at Passover that happened three thousand three hundred. 40 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. So and we still ha- we still memorialize what, that we left Egypt. That's an event that happened thousands of years ago. I'm not sure if we'll have a holiday for holidays, but I think what we're doing today is exactly how you do it. You have young girls, their parents, hearing a survivor from Russia, hearing a, a Yid from, from Budapest tell his story, right? That's how we give it to the next generation. Just like we pass down our traditions and other levels. It's by hearing it. I, I tell my kids, and my kids have seen, I didn't get to my wife's side. My wife's, you know, tell you a funny story. My wife comes from Hungarian backgrounds. I'm all Polish. So in, on, my, on my first date with my wife, so I said to her, you know, as a little kid, my bubby used to always say that Poland is the best, <laughs> then comes Galicia, and then it's Hungary. So my wife tells me, oh, it's funny. My grandma said, Hungary is the best. <laughs> then comes Galicia, and then it comes Poland, right? But, you know, my, so my wife's grandparents also were survivors. They're, they're Hungarian, so it's a very different story because Hungary got to the war much later. Um, we heard that. My kids heard that. It's all about meetings like you have to. That's why 
this meeting, that's why these girls coming is so, so important. You know, they're turning bat mitzvah with the rest of their lives. They're going to remember they heard from people who were there. Yes. Okay, I just, in case you... Oh, Al, I'm sorry, wait, wait, truth. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I want to, to answer Bruce's question. Say, besides being a, a, a lawyer, I'm also a rabbi. And as a rabbi, I can tell you that besides Hashem and any other reason, if you are the more connected you are to your Judaism at whatever level that is, the more you'll remember the Holocaust because your Judaism is important to you. And the Holocaust was a very important Jewish historical event. The more Judaism, just like Israel, they show that the more connected you are to Judaism, the more you care about Israel. Same thing about the Holocaust. The more you're connected to Judaism, the more you will keep Holocaust in mind in, in, in the future. Al? I'm trying to say two things. One is, um, it's always been a question in my mind. What happened or why did the rabbis that were counsels of the Germans and the warriors not advise the Jews to fight out the fight and to keep themselves alive rather than being carried out? Right. And the other thing I want to say, and I'll listen to your answer. This morning in the uh, Mercury was an article on uh, on um, uh, the Jews acting with the Holocaust or handling the Holocaust in the background as um, what's his name? That's running for president. Bernie. Yeah. The key thing, yeah. rather yeah. than 
the Holocaust as the major. Yeah, sure. And I don't think he was criticizing Saunders one way or the other. He was talking to the Jewish people uh, and you know, talk right. about how great we are. So just to answer the first question, I mean, I'll go because I don't think girls want to do their thing. So I'll stay around if anyone has any questions. But as far as Al's first point um, about fighting back um, against, so first of all, what, what is the most famous uh, fight back against the Nazis? The f- rebellion? The Warsaw Ghetto. So the Warsaw Ghetto, they, before they decide, you have to remember, when you're in the Warsaw Ghetto, they're going to liquidate the ghetto, but at the same time, if they liquidate the ghetto, if they liquidate the ghetto, you're, people know, but if you fight back now, there will be immediate deaths. There's no right answer in 1943 in Poland. They were, it, was a, it was a suicide mission to fight back. But they, before they fought back, they went to Rabbi Menachem Zemba, who was the Agar Chassid, who was one of the heads of the Warsaw Jewish community before the Holocaust. And he told them to fight back. Actually, they, they fought back under a Menachem Zemba's advice. But I'll tell you a different thing, just to answer Al's question, and, and then I'm going to sit down just so the girls can go. In, in, when Lithuania happened, there was no concentration camps in Lithuania. Camp. They, they, went, they went with Einsatzgruppen and just mowed them down. They had pits... And they mowed them down. And um, there were two towns. One was Kelm. Kelm was surrounded. There had been a yeshiva in Kelm, uh, a Muslim yeshiva, which is a, with the study ethics. And in Kelm, they're surrounded by Nazis and machine guns. They, they, they were, they, the, basically, the Polish army loses in three weeks. <laughs> a whole army. Lithuania was just marched into, first by the Russians and later by the Nazis. They had no real methods to fight back. And basically, the Rosh Hashiva, the Kelm yeshiva, took them and said, uh, said we should die as believing Jews, let's all pray. And they, they said, and they, all, they were shot and they were killed. The next town over, uh, as the Nazis did the same thing, basically they killed over a million and a half Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, and on, and on the Russian border Jews, exactly in this way, just shot them into pits. The next town over, as they're t- rallying up the Jews, a Jew calls over a Nazi and stabs him in the heart, and they, then they start shooting at him. They shot the whole group. They went to the Rav of Kovna, of Kawis, Rav Avram Dov Berkahana, who was a famous rabbi, and they asked him who was right. Should they, what they have done in Kalm is right? Should what they have done in the other town? The guy stabbed him. It was, they were going to lose either way. Better to go down taking it or to use your, your final moments praying to God because there's no real uh, opportunity. So they're both right, as long as the same, if, if your intentions are correct, right? There are no right answers. There are no easy answers, to be honest, in the Holocaust. I, I, no. I, we, if, the, if the French army and the Polish army couldn't beat them, so it depends on what your intentions are. Certainly, uh, I think that whether you're a rabbi or anyone fighting back, there, the consequences were very, very great. If you fought back, they killed women and children. So it's hard to know today, but I will say that there are more than one way to have fought the Nazis. Certainly what we're doing today, whether it's seven children or many other people, we're all fighting Nazis, and thank you for having me.